0: Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards that, like, some greater purpose? The only DJ
1: crazy enough to tattoo Jackie
0: Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip.
1: Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill,
0: and I am not Malcolm Baum, but I'm JT White.
1: Yes, that is right. As the Beatles once said, just the two of us. Uh, wait, no, that was uh, Will Smith. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Malcolm is recovering. Pray for Malcolm. Uh, turned up a little too hard at the club. Ended up in the ER. Uh, long story short, he'll be back soon enough.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, is pretty much but, all but, we need but to say. But keep Malcolm in your thoughts. Yeah, he's, yeah.
1: He's going through some pain right now. Um, but, but... But but we are here to talk about some new shit. Um, I wanted to do kind of a roundup of new releases for the year uh, because I think that this is an interesting point in the movie year. And this is more of a structural thing, like every year is kind of like this, um, where it's a good point to do a best of the year so far type thing because... When you're halfway through the year, at the end of June, you're kind of like in the middle of the summer stuff, you know? Uh, And like this one, I feel like it's really focusing on the early year releases and the the pre-summer fair, if you will. Uh, You know, pre-summer glut, pre-fall awards push, really pre-Killers of the Flower Moon. Because when you're talking about the best films of 2023, that's just... We're waiting for that pretty much, yeah. Uh, but it's also a good time to check in before a bunch of good stuff comes out, you know. It's like we have the new Wes Anderson, the new Abel Ferrara in June, uh, the July release slate is like Oppenheimer and Barbie and all the franchise glut, like the Dial of Destiny and Mission Impossible 20 and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I feel like this is an interesting and, like, a good point to check in uh, because, yeah, no, we get sort of, uh, I don't know, at this point in the year, each time I'm like, wow, like, I've seen so few, like, actually good movies this year. But this is, like, the weird, I don't know, they, they, you get, obviously, the blockbuster fill in the summer, you get the awards movie push. Towards like fall in the latter half of the year, you get the weird kind of like odds and ends like at the beginning, like first half. You get a lot of a lot of trash, but some hidden gems in there. Well, January trash is like,
1: you know, an annual tradition for like the real heads. And for the real heads, you know, the January to May movies, that's for the guys who really are out there grinding tape, if you will, Uh, going to the multiplex every week and eating up the slop. And uh, usually I'm that guy. I would say this year is very low for me. Like right now, I think I've only seen maybe like 12 new releases for the year or something like that. Usually I'd be up to like 25, 30 by now. Um, But this year has just been... I I, I haven't been all that motivated. But this episode motivated me. So we're here more than anything to talk about the new film by Paul Schrader. uh, Because that is kind of like the headliner of this time of the year. The, The dual headlines in the film culture right now are, of course the Cannes Film Festival going on, uh, which is another reason I wanted to do this, you get a little preview of what the awards push and fall is going to look like. Uh, but for the people who are actually watching movies at the movie theaters in America and not in the south of France, Master Gardener is the uh, the cinephile event of the season. Um, you, you strolled into the local multiplex and
0: saw this yesterday, right, JT? Absolutely. It was a, a real treat with, uh, like, I don't know, me ziggs nico uh like four other seniors in there yeah it was a packed house
1: that's that's a rowdy trio you ziggs and nico that's like you know some shit's going down there like if you guys aren't vibing with the movie you guys are gonna be yucking it up yeah yeah causing a ruckus (laughs) but Master Gardener is the third installment in this recent trilogy by Paul Schrader. Uh, You know, much has been made about this late career Renaissance uh, that started with first reformed, which, you know, got a big distribution push by a 24. And this was after Paul Schrader was kind of in a ghetto uh, of distribution for about a decade between autofocus, I would say. uh, And, first reformed like he had a lot he made movies but they were like b movies there were a lot of like dtv stuff you know dog eat dog and dying of the light and shit like that uh but this late career renaissance three movies um that are about lonely men in rooms who write to themselves uh, obviously pulling a lot from brisson's diary of a country priest as well as of course pickpocket which he's pulled from throughout his entire career Uh, These films are very quiet and, uh, you know, internal battles between uh, a peaceful, tranquil lifestyle and the violence and rage that is building up in these lonely men. In the first one, you know, you have Ethan Hawke. Uh, He's a pastor and you're dealing with uh, ecological doom. He realizes the world's going to end because of climate. Uh, He's dealing with like the corporatization of his church. And he wants to do terrorism because of it. But what saves him but love? In the card counter, uh, this dude used to be at Abu Ghraib torturing fools like this, uh, and then he becomes like a poker star. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous thing ever. But again, a quiet man who is all about his business, who has you know tortured shit in him, uh, and then this one is just like a guy who used to be in a white power gang, who is now a gardener. And I feel like it's, you know, both the least redemptive and the least kind of cool for any of these protagonists.
0: (laughs) Is that also uh, your thought here, JT? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't know about, like, I was talking after we got out of the theater. I was like, okay, like, is like a white supremacist kind of hitman. Or like Abu Ghraib torturer, like where do like we're sussing those out? It's a little hard to say which is worse. Yeah, like, he's obvi- the
1: hierarchy of moral failures is like pretty. You know, it's it's even there because Abu Ghraib. It's like he was tricked by the military industrial complex. You know, you would think that's kind of like a American sniper situation. Uh The white power gang. Like he's just like, yeah, man. I just I just hate people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like the more low key, like sort of version of it. Like, I like, um, I'd say it's, it's definitely my least favorite of the three, but like that is not to undermine like how good, uh, Master Gardener is. It's the most that sort of feels like I like, obviously, like it's a late era Schrader, but it, yeah. it sort of because of how sort of like stripped down it is. Like a stripped down version of what he's been doing in this trilogy. It felt like the most like a uh, late era, like Clint, yeah, like release. Totally. Like, in that regard. I mean,
1: it reminds you, of course, of the ending of The Mule, where Clint is set to be a gardener in prison for the rest of his life, you know, going mm-hmm. back to horticulture. And I think the gardening thing is a great metaphor. It's a great old man metaphor about, you know, like what is the most tranquil thing an old man like that can do is plant seeds and watch them grow, you know? Uh, And of course for Paul Schrader, uh, he thinks that, you know, the, the high you get from sniffing soil uh, is equal to the high you get from when you're about to kill someone with a gun uh, in classic Paul Schrader voiceover here. Uh, And that's kind of like where, The story goes from this kind of tranquil story about a gardener who looks a little edgy into a tortured soul being shown in flashbacks.
0: Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the gardener, like Nazi overlap there, like being like a former fascist guy, like it makes sense that he would be like, there's like the order of the garden that, like, especially the way he's detailing it, like he's still like, rigid rules and hierarchy in his hobby here still like it like you have oh, the absolutely. race racial classifications of flowers like there's still like a lot of his core knowledge and skill set is still He's pulling there. out the
1: yeah. calipers on his fucking employees <laughs> yeah no i mean it's uh all of his protagonists all of schrader's protagonists in this way are these like it it's not professionalism in the way of michael mann it's more of just like a sense of duty where you're just like a monk just enslaved to this thing that you do whether it's counting cards or preaching or gardening and so i feel like this one is almost like the most absurd uh in that he's just a gardener But it's also an easy way to graft on such a bigger picture, kind of weird, like American history, like racial metaphor to it, Uh, where he's literally like a plantation boss in this, Uh, or like really Sigourney Weaver is a plantation boss in this. And they're like in the South at this garden that's been around for hundreds of years. And Sigourney Weaver talks about like her. Uh, her grandniece who is of mixed blood, which sounds like a racist piece of dialogue from a Matt Farley movie. (laughs) My my mixed blood grandniece. (laughs) Uh, but, of course, this mixed-blood grandniece, who uh, is played by Quintessa Swindell very well, of course, uh, the character Maya, uh, is very quiet and is, like, very perfect for this type of role, but hilarious that Schrader initially wanted Zendaya as this character. That's so funny. Uh, uh- <laughs> and just, like, imagining just, like, the the teen stands watching this is just... What a great, you know, alternate world that would have been. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he falls in love with this grandniece, uh, Maya, uh, who obviously they have something, you know, standing between them and the fact that she is uh, half black and he has Nazi tattoos all over himself. The premise of this feels like a fake Paul Schrader movie almost. Like, it's so, so far into this... Um, thing of peacefulness and tranquility versus violence and monk-like solitude and writing in a journal in uh, empty rooms and stuff like that. And it's the fact that it still works is just unbelievable. As uh, like because of how good his filmmaking is, because he's so locked into this super controlled style that he once described as like the transcendental film style where he wrote this book about you know Ozu Dreyer and Bresson and how those three kind of are supposedly influencing his form throughout his whole career where obviously he also has the exploitation hyper violent side of him that's been there since Rolling Thunder uh, and Taxi Driver that obviously does not exist in the films of those three arthouse guys uh, but i think the The transcendental style that, as he calls it, uh, mixed with that, like, exploitation, pulp, repressed, uh, you know, formerly religious boy uh, stuff is just, like, it's just always going to be good to a certain extent, even in his weaker films.
0: No, I I definitely buy that, because it is, like, yeah, no, on paper, like, it's just, like, so ridiculous... And I can see why, like, I mean, there's, like, a lot of the negative reaction is, like, I feel like kind of, I don't know, it's it's silly because it's just about, like, oh, well, like, can we redeem, like, is there this, how, there shouldn't be any redemption for this, like, yeah. former Nazi character, which I think is, like, in its own right kind of silly because it's, like, Whether or not it is possible, I like Schrader's meditation on that, and like the notion that there is like a way to kind of uh, redeem yourself.
1: And I don't think it's a yes or no
0: thing. Exactly, I think exactly
1: the film begs the question: How far can you push redemption or reformation? Even, Uh, like, how deep into a ditch can you dig a character to still feel? uh some sort of redemption for him some sort of moment of grace for him you know and uh even if it's not like yes he is redeemed uh because he's still just like gonna live there at this plantation like at the end of it like he basically just like gets his gig back in a better way you know uh, where he's like, I'm gonna live in the shed with Maya, and we're gonna be husband and wife. You know, <laughs> it's a it's a true Homer Simpson. I sleep in a big bed uh-huh. with my wife ending. Uh, but I kind of like that better than like uh, the transcendence of the end, uh, like the transcendent version of the pickpocket ending that he's done in the last two movies. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is better because he's not like he's not imprisoned. He's just like accepted his future. And also Paul Schrader lives in an old people's home now. Like he lives in a retirement community. This dude was on oxygen while he was directing this movie. I think there's something really moving about like the character not exactly transcending. Kind of just like, yeah, I'll get rid of my tattoos. Sure. Like, and we'll just keep gardening and I'll live in the cabin with you as my wife now. Like, rather than having the transcendent ending. I think that's more accepting of where he is as an old man on the verge of death. I
0: agree. And I mean, like, it's just, in general, the, like, scope of it is just so, like, smaller scale and personal. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like, we're not dealing with, like, the Defoe like character of being like a like involved with like the the U.S. government in any way in this one Mm -hmm. it's just like one character named Sissy and then like this other like drug dealer like that's the the peak of like sort of his like enemies here in the modern day and it's just like I don't know I like that smaller scale for the story because again you're not like we're not reaching for like, a level of, like, sort of cosmic transcendence, but it's just this, like, smaller, quiet, like, moment of peace, and I think that, like, that's mixed in with a lot of, like, really messy, like, weird, fun stuff, like, obviously his relationship with Maya is sort of fulfilling, like, the, like, as as he's change when he flips from being like a white supremacist to a police informant he loses uh his uh wife and daughter in the process and like i like that maya is sort of fulfilling both in a weird way like i like the messy sort of gray area there and just like that mixed with like the ending isn't like um again like it's not a huge redemptive beat but it's just like, I don't know, a, a beautiful, tender little scene of them just dancing on the porch.
1: Uh, and I think it's great that it's like and then they have the the shot of them driving uh, down the road where all the flowers are blooming. And, you know, you get some CG work there. Oh, that everything was sick. just becomes grass and like the highway disappears, essentially. And that's as potent and blatant of a metaphor as Schrader can give you here, where he's been on the highway the whole time. And now he's in the garden, you know, like he's done working like and he might make another movie, but like he's done struggling the way he's been struggling for so long. And he's reached a sense of peace uh, to an extent, at least. And uh, I think that's beautiful. I also think it's funny to use this as a look into how much of his worldview is shaped by like Facebook memes, Uh, like clearly all of the like what contemporary white supremacy proud boy stuff is like clearly just stuff he saw on facebook right oh
0: and some of the t-shirts too. the maya's good oh, vibes yes. only and then the the cop like who's uh like his his handler, handler from the yeah, fbi yeah, or whatever as the we should all be feminists t-shirt or something like that uh, what
1: is he cooking yeah. like what <laughs> what is going on there <laughs> yeah no i i love the like little things like that that are so blatantly out of time like that that really is what reminds me of eastwood here is how like culturally detached he is uh and it's it's really great i mean anyone who knows paul schrader and is online is like well aware of his uh mores on facebook (laughs) And, uh, you know, I, I think that old man crank memes are part of contemporary cultural language. And if they inform Schrader, even 5%, where 95% of his brain is still the movies he saw 50 years ago and his, you know, repressed religious upbringing, uh, even that 5% makes it so funny. Oh, to me. yeah,
0: no. 5%, like old man facebook memes and taylor swift <laughs> i forgot he's a big swifty uh, that
1: is one of the best things
0: <laughs> also what
1: again what is he cooking in terms of like you know tiffany haddish in the last one he really wanted zendaya for this one. <laughs> what's he cooking <laughs> what's going on at that retirement home <laughs> Um, anyway I, uh, I I really like this movie I I, I don't want to go too deep into it um, because not too much happens it's like it's like the last few Schrader movies where the pacing and the uh, transcendental style uh, it, it like slows everything down so you get an hour and 50 minutes worth of movie. And probably 80 minutes of plotting, which is, you know, if you don't like the style, you're going to be bored. But that probably applies to every Paul Schrader movie. You know, um, I I think this is like just a notch below cart counter. I think it's really
0: good. Yeah, I agree.
1: And I also think as we transition,
0: I think it's the best movie of the year so far. Um, Not I, I would disagree with that, but it's definitely up there for me. It's on the list.
1: So what do you have raining right now as we are at this end of the first like segment of the year? I'm not going to break them into thirds. I would say the year is three segments. You have January to May, and then you have the summer, and then you have the fall Oscar or fall awards push slash general artsy movies coming out in fall and you know early winter. Uh, what is your favorite movie of the first segment um, of 2023, JT?
0: Well, my it's like my top three I'll just give right now. Um, one, the number one, I'm not going to delve too much into because uh, I'm sure we'll cover it and then the other Moturn release at a later date. Uh, but Boston Johnny, which I also, I did two new releases yesterday. So after getting home from uh, Master Gardener, we throw on Boston Johnny, and Boston Johnny is my top of the year. But, like, Motern, Ooh. like, that's that's its own class. They're on
1: a historic run right exactly,
0: now. Exactly, exactly.
1: Like, when we write the books on, or when other people write the books on, you know, film culture, late 2010s into the early 2020s, who else is doing low-budget cinema at that level? Like, Hong Sang-soo and that's it.
0: Yeah, I know. Like, and such a great, consistent, just like... It is, it's a class of a class of its own. One for one, if you will. But uh, outside of that, I would say Pony and Selvin Part 2 by Manny Rottenham and uh, Pathan are my uh, top two. To, uh, and again, but that feels, I mean not feels, that is like separate from like generally like the, that and Moturn are just like so entirely apart from like what, mainstream sort of like western like film culture is uh mm-hmm. taking in and commenting on.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, my top 3 uh I would say Master Gardener right now slid into the number 1 spot. Numbers 2 and 3 for me right now, I god, if you told me that these would be my 2 and 3 like 6 months ago I would not have believed you at all. I would have said that the podcast was over. I would have said that I stopped watching movies. I would have said that you have Eddie somewhere, and you're not, you're not telling me the truth about his top three. Number two is Bo is Afraid, directed by Ari Aster, and uh, number three is How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Daniel Goldhaber. And I have nothing against Daniel Goldhammer. I haven't seen his other movie. Uh, I just didn't think that that one was going to be as good as it was. The real shocker here the redemption story of the year. You know, Paul Schrader asked Can you redeem a character who did torture at Abu Ghraib? Can you redeem a character who was a white supremacist and killed people? Uh, I ask Can you redeem a man who directed Hereditary? Uh, 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 and i think i think the answer is yes like i am shocked that yes uh horror is not this man's genre that is my that is my thesis here is just like i don't know i think he tries too hard with horror and this one is a comedy it's i know that's a strange way to describe it if you've seen it it's a very fantastical movie uh very sometimes horrifying uh sometimes you know i don't even know um but It reminds me of the comedies of Philip Roth. And I know that Philip Roth is a novelist, not a filmmaker. Uh, And it reminded me uh, in some some capacity with the burden of the curse of the father in this. And, uh, you know, it's very easy, Oedipal work, uh, Freudian whatever. But it kind of reminded me of David Berman. Uh, you know, a guy, a guy who is like ashamed of his father, kind of, and wanted to do something completely different. This movie, if you don't know, rather than uh, you know, you know, look up David Berman from Silver Jews and Purple Mountains and look up his personal life, uh, if you want a little insight on that. This movie, uh, his his father carries a hereditary disease, much like in the first Ari Aster Unforgivable movie, hereditary. Uh, where uh, 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 he he dies when he nuts. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, same with the father before him, same with the father before him. So walking Phoenix uh, is afraid to nut, and uh, he's also afraid of his mother, and he's also afraid of society, and that is why the movie is good. Um, the first hour of this, man maybe even the first hour and a half or so, you get a glimpse of the city and the suburbs. And it's just like everything in contemporary life that you can be afraid of, uh, especially as like a neurotic person. It's like it's from the viewpoint of a neurotic privileged person perched up in their apartment, you know, dwelling over the urban landscape where people are homeless and dying on the street. Uh, so it turns, you know, city life into a horror movie. And I've seen some people react like, wow, Ari Aster must hate homeless people. Ari Aster must hate living in a big city. And it's like, yeah, no, it's clearly from the perspective of this guy who also the other David Berman connection, not just living down his father, uh, has been on like so many different medications. You know, you get this intro with the therapist where it's like, clearly this guy has been fucked up through all of these different medications he's been on, and that's why he's afraid of the world. Uh and then obviously, spoiler alert, turns out his mom and the therapist were in cahoots. Um, but it's a guy who has tried everything and can't cope with the world. And so if you want to like reflect that on to what you think Ari Aster thinks about like you know, urban life in America, I, I think that's a little ridiculous. Ari Aster is a guy who's successful and can make movies. He's not a guy who is afraid to leave his house because of a concoction of medications that he's on. I think people are a little uh, too inclined to read this film
0: literally from an auteurist standpoint. Yeah. Um JT, you, you saw this. You liked it, right? Absolutely. I was, again, like uh when you and Malcolm both gave it the uh, seal of approval. I was just like, I mean, there was already some parts like, I feel like people who liked uh, Astor's uh, first uh, two movies tended to sour on this one. Like I know Ethan also uh, gave it a a positive review and I was like, okay, like I, I finally, I got to roll out and check it out. And yeah, no, just it's, like amazing just how much it like his shtick like works and like sort of syncs up uh, with comedy and I mean I think that like I haven't seen uh, Midsummer, but like Hereditary I think there are some beats that are very clearly played as like a joke and like those are the most successful parts of that very bad movie Um, and here he's just like sort of all like I don't know. He's he's finally tuned, like calibrated things just right where it's just like this. I don't want to say like exactly like precise middle point between horror and comedy, um, because it's definitely more just like like comedy. But he he's playing with that just like unpleasantness there. And that I feel like is just like it has such a high hit rate. And there are just so many points of this that are like just hilarious and just like, again, like obviously it's not reflecting like his own perspective. Like I think the the homeless people like th- you're right to dismiss those uh, criticisms because it's just like, no, it's like you're occupying the headspace of a uh just incredibly anxious person and just at every turn like you're getting like his worst nightmare and just like having him have to deal with that is like hysterical. Like the scene of him of Joaquin in the car being forced by a teenage girl to like get high and then be recorded <laughs> on like camera is so funny. And it's just like that's the yeah. perfect like that's a horrible situation. That's an like just that's a nightmare moment.
1: Yeah. And I love that the suburbs are just as scary as the city. Exactly. Just because they're not as hectic. It's like, it's just as bad because it's a different form of societal rot on America. Like... There are there are things that Aster can say are bad going on without... Hit. Like, yeah, you could say the homelessness epidemic in America is bad without saying you hate homeless people. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Anyone who looks outside should say, oh, these people should have housing. Like, you know, uh, wh- whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on. You can look in the suburbs and say, wow, there is a lot of opioid addiction. And depend- no matter what side of the political spectrum you are, like, that's just like, it's how you interpret that problem it d- decides you know your ideology or whatever aster is presenting these problems through a comical surrealist lens and i think that you know you're just taking a grain of truth and making it into a surreal comic fantasy and like i i love it for that
0: yeah i just think and it also like it's a gag movie that just like completely sticks the landing there of like pulling mm-hmm. the like I don't know, just the joke winding up being that, like, yep, the absolute worst fear of, like, this paranoid individual with mother issues that his mother is literally controlling everything. Like, I don't know, I feel like too many people, and especially when I was, like, ready to, like, dismiss this from, like, trailers and things like that, I feel like i was like okay well like obviously it's like the freudian mommy issues whatever like i don't know it's just like but what's the point like but that doesn't mm-hmm. I, I don't know it's like he's clearly playing on that for like and taking it to such an obvious and sort of like uh, exaggerated point that's just like it's just funny like it's just funny to see yeah. like the most heightened versions of these fears for me it does like i mean i think the point, which I feel like you'll probably agree with this, where it falters the most is the play sort of like CGI yeah. sequence. But I kind of understand the utility of it because it's just like, I mean, I think he's like, it's a beat where you're more sympathetic towards this character that I feel like is kind of necessary rather than it just like being entirely hardened and cynical. And I like the like I like the beat, but I don't like the execution. I is just like. That's just the biggest zone-out point in the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I I mean, it's the weakest spot of the movie, but I like it structurally as a bridge yeah. to actually getting to his mom. Exactly. And like, uh, like, getting back to his mom's house through this interpretive play kind of thing where I actually, you know, some of it's zone-out, but I really like when it gets a lot more... Um I don't even know how you would describe it but the different layers of himself as like the old man and thinking he's discovering his children yeah. uh and everything like that like I I thought that kind of sticks the landing of that segment when it starts off with the animated stuff I was like okay this is where the movie is losing me but I think it it sticks the landing well and is a great transition into the the third act. Yeah yeah and the third act also has a uh, you know callback to defending your life by fucking Albert Brooks. Like the end is like literally a showdown. <laughs> <where> <laughs> it's like defending your life in a coliseum in like a darkened coliseum where you're in the water. It's so fucking weird. It's i i love it i i think it's like a really really strong movie it's not great because of there's like 20 30 minutes that i'm just like almost lost for but it's a three hour movie so that means there's also like two and a half hours that i think are legitimately great so ari Aster, come on the pod let's hash it out buddy yeah
0: yeah no the beef (laughs) has been settled
1: Um, It also reminded me, yeah, like of uh, The Breast by Philip Roth uh, is another one that I I came to mind while I was watching this one, Um, especially with uh, how his father appears at the end as a giant penis. Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) His father being a penis monster, pretty good bit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah i i was cackling i was cackling in the theater um another one i wanted to talk about for not as long because i know you didn't get to see it is uh how to blow up a pipeline i i really liked this you know i there was a lot of hullabaloo on twitter and you know what let's just breeze right by that
0: let's just fucking shut that you don't want to have a 20 minute conversation about how leftist it is you're telling me
1: (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) look is this film a perfect political object no and no film ever will be, you know? So, like, whatever. But also, like, is this the only way to do just, like, a gritty, process-oriented, like, man-on-a-mission film these days? Because if so, then fine. Like, give me 100 of these a year. This is, like, really fun, straight-up genre stuff that has a lot of, you know, social issue drama stuff uh, weaved into it. But just as a pure... I say men on a mission cuz that's like the name of the genre. It's, you know, pretty diverse group in terms of uh gender yeah, and race. Yeah, they thems on uh, a mission. <laughs> uh, but uh yeah, the the for a super gritty process oriented they thems on a mission movie, uh like it's awesome. I think that part is awesome. The camera work is so uh intentional. Like, it's always moving, but not in a way where it's floating around. The camera is always guiding you to look at something important. Uh, And there's so much movement within it, too. And the editing is great. There's a pulsating synth score that runs throughout the whole thing. It's structured like Reservoir Dogs, where, you know, you're getting the flashbacks of the character origins. Um, not structured like Reservoir Dogs in terms of the aftermath of a crime. You see them actually doing it. Um, But in terms of the flashback origins of the characters, some of those, the dramatic validity or even just like the quality is like imbalanced at best. And that's where the movie gets bad, not bad, but just weaker, you know? And they also feel like kind of like concessions to commercial storytelling. Like if you're getting funding for this movie, Uh, that's based on a nonfiction book about how to blow up a pipeline, Uh, you're probably going to have to tell the distributors, like, oh, all the characters have motivations. You know, that's like Screenwriting 101. So the character motivation flashbacks feel a little like concessions to commercial storytelling. Great geometric use of pipelines and oil machinery and shit like that and barren landscapes. I just think visually this thing rules. I love the way it looks, the way it moves, the way it sounds. There's a scene where a guy lassos a drone with a ratchet strap. Oh, sick. And it's like, that's the type of action that we would see in a new Western. You know, like, this is not a Western, but, like, that's the type of action you would see in a new Western. And that makes me, like, excited about new movies almost. Like, that... 15 second moment was so sick <laughs> um sasha lane eh i still have a problem with her american honey like that movie stunk and then she kind of still has those same tics it's weird uh just not not really my cup of tea in this movie i think like the it's just a mixed bag in terms of the performances um very funny that there's a like part of the plot hinges on one of them being a rat and uh it's the one like this couple who's in it and the guy is just like i know we're like doing terrorism but like i'm trying to get head while i'm doing terrorism (laughs) and it's a very funny detour (laughs) um and uh yeah i i just think that like montage really helps this movie uh the flow of the images and the the soundtrack and uh you know uh, the drama like doesn't all the way work for me, but I think the genre stuff is awesome, just as a pure procedure-based thriller. Um, you go to the movies any other time recently, JT? Any any other shout-outs you want to give? Oh yeah, as we wrap up here.
0: Um, one last shout-out I would like to give uh, is to our old buddy uh, Hong Sang Soo, and because Ooh. this motherfucker's making so many goddamn movies. <laughs> Um, like, at so many different times in a year, like, your release dates are gonna be all, all nonsense for everyone, because it's just like, oh, okay, LA, New York sees the movie a year early, goes to other cities, like, a year later, like, most of them don't even get, like, major, like, distribution deals. There's one guy who, um, does programming at, uh, the Lightbox Film Center in Philly, who he did, uh, he programmed another Hong, but when, like, the two times I've seen him, like, before uh, the show, he's like, we're getting all the Hongs in Philly. Like, I made it my mission. Like, so, solid dude. And I just want to shout out the Lightbox for that. I appreciate that. Shout
1: out to the Lightbox Philadelphia, future home of extended (laughs) clubs. Exactly.
0: Um, But, uh, so I saw a walk-up, and it reminded me, There is uh, an Austin Powers quote where Fat Bastard is talking about his fart and how it's like when you go into an apartment building and you smell other people's cooking and you're like, oh, what are they cooking? Like kind of a thing. (laughs) Walk Up is Hong Sang Su's version of being in an apartment and being like, oh, what are they cooking? And it's just envisioning. Like uh, a man in different, like different lives that you could lead in different apartment buildings. Uh, he's like, I'm not sure if it follows it exactly. And again, like, there's no like, obviously there's not like, I, I feel like no precise like exact reading on it. But like, sure, he's yeah. uh, he like, it's like a filmmaker with his daughter like, meeting an old, like, I think an old actress who owns uh, this building, this uh, walk-up apartment building, she briefly tells about some of the people uh, that live uh, in the building, and then we see scenes uh, with our lead actor uh, in some of these lives, Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's, like, one of those, like, I don't know, it's, like, a a fun kind of more quirky like structural Mm -hmm. gambit that's not like like playing things like two different times with whatever variation it's just sort of like I I don't know it really evoked that feeling of like those what if it's it's the again I'm throwing out so many comparisons but it's Hong Sang Su's what if like just uh, yeah yeah his
1: sliding doors yeah yeah no walk up is awesome I for last year's Hong releases I preferred The novelist's film by a fair margin. I agree. I mean, the novelist's film just feels major within his filmography. Exactly. Walk Up, a little slight, but still very good. Uh, Also, a little slight, but still very good from this year, I would say. The new M. Night Shyamalan, uh, a little slight. Not quite there. Not quite peak M. Night, but I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, no, it was great. I would also say the same about the new Kelly Reichert showing up. Uh, Not one of my favorites of hers. Feels a little slight. Doesn't feel like, you know, really swinging for the fences. But I liked it. I liked it better than First Cow. I thought it was very charming. Uh, Very well shot, of course. And, uh, yeah, I I, I liked it. What else is there? Oh, Saint-Omer. I saw this yesterday. And I know this played Cannes a year ago, but technically it came out in the U.S. this year. Um, This is the uh, fiction debut by Alice Diop, a French nonfiction filmmaker whose work I really want to check out now because this film uses autofiction as well I guess Diop attended a trial just like this and based the movie off of it and uh, you know we see a a novelist rather than a filmmaker character attending this trial about infanticide Uh, we see a young Senegalese uh, French woman who killed her baby And she is testifying. And obviously it's a uh, kind of societal parable. And it's also about procedure and the procedures that inform society's rules and how society ends up in these places where a mother might kill her children because of the legal procedures that led them to that point. Um, obviously it's not full on saying, Hey, you should feel bad for this lady who (laughs) killed her child. (laughs) And I think the ending of, uh, the ending gets a little messy because it's like, it kind of elides the final verdict. And, uh, it's like, you know, what's going to happen, but I think that it's meant to be like a grace note. But it doesn't fully land for me. But I think if it lands for someone else, like I get it. Like it's a, it's an awesome poetic note. It just didn't fully land for me. But I thought the movie, the filmmaking is so good, and it reminded me of like Frederick Wiseman's patience for process, and uh, it's just like a really great, you know, showcase of procedure.
0: This is a movie I have seen the title for so much, and every time I see it. I've had the, I've thought of it as Saint Omer, like Mo Sislak saying Homer's name in my mind every time. <laughs> and I've tried to, hey, Saint <laughs> Saint Omer. Saint Omer. And I've tried to get a joke, but I was like, I don't know. Like, I see the court setting. And I was like, is this a movie? Now I know it's about infanticide, but I thought it was like about sexual assault. Or something at first. So oh no!
1: Like, yeah, no, it's not about anything bad. You can joke. I about can't. It.
0: I was like, I can't wade into the water there. But now, 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 it's yeah. Out now that there, you yeah.
1: know, it's not about sexual assault, but about killing a baby. Yeah, it's yes, fine. you can joke it's about fine, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, other new releases. Air was pretty mid. Uh, pretty funny though. I can't believe they put the fucking needle drop from Body Double in it. That's like one of the funniest things of the year. Uh, the unveiling of the Air Jordan set to the theme from body double when he's peeping on Melanie Griffith. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know the, 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 I just wanted to check in. I think that's, uh, all I feel too strongly about this year so far. Any other shout outs you want to give JT? Um,
0: no, not to anything. I mean, champions I liked, I mean, again, weaker, I didn't catch
1: up on that yet, it, but I got it's, to, it's a yeah.
0: weaker fairly movie, but I think like there's enough there for the, for the heads the auteurists to really like see. I mean, I think the, the sentimentality is there. It's definitely, uh, better than, uh, greatest beer run. There's more charm mm. and just like more, just like, just playing it like a straight up comedy. Uh, you get to, I don't know. You get to see Woody Harrelson, uh, teach the team about a pick and roll. Um, which is great. Nice. Like it's, it's cool. It's cool. There's there's stuff there to be enjoyed. So that's the last thing I want to shout out. I also liked Creed 3. Oh yeah, I agree. You know, look,
1: I think Jonathan Majors, he leaned a little too hard into the villain role. He let it take over his psyche. Yeah. Uh but yeah, no, it's good. It's not great. It's so stupid that they tried to make it an LA movie. Yeah,
0: no. I was so pissed. I was like, why is this not in Philly?
1: Yeah, it's the Philly series. Like These movies are in philly
0: yeah i was like i haven't seen creed 2 but i know it takes place less so than the first one in philly but like no philly at all in creed 3 very weird
1: disappointing disappointing um i think uh if malcolm was here he would give a hearty shout out to neil jordan's marlowe uh, which oh it's yeah, his sure. favorite movie of the year so far but I <laughs> thought that was horrible I, like I, I I think Malcolm and' I'm, I've briefly talked about that in person, but we gotta hash that one out that's a rough one uh, and I have a feeling it's gonna come back into the conversation for Malcolm's end of the year list too
0: i'm I'm excited for that i <laughs> i'm I, I know I'm ready to listen to that one. Did you watch Marlowe? Uh no, I haven't yet, but I know now that it's a conversation to be had, I need to. <laughs>
1: There's a really funny scene at the end where some guy who works at the studio like uh tells Liam Neeson that Lenny Riefenstahl, man, she makes a hell of a movie. <laughs> I just thought, I I was like so glad glad, I stuck it out. Glad
0: they gave her a shout out.
1: I almost turned the movie off, and then I was so glad that I stuck it out and watched to the end to see that scene. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All
1: right. Well, our next episode, our uh, our guest is going to be director Owen Klein, uh, the writer director of the film Funny Pages. He will be here. We will be talking about uh, Robert Altman's Brewster McLeod and Joseph Losey's Secret Ceremony. So that is the next one um, at extended clip 69 on Twitter, extended clip podcast at gmail.com. Goodbye, everybody. Bye bye.